Now we come again to what Paul is writing to Timothy, his last epistle to Timothy. Uh, the context, once again, is that uh, Paul is in Rome and Timothy is still shepherding and pastoring in Ephesus. And Paul knows that he's had um, a deliverance through the first appearance before Caesar during this imprisonment. But he already has a, a prescience, a foreknowledge that his departure is soon, which means that the second time he appears before Caesar, uh, he's going to face an execution edict, which historically turned out to be so. So he's writing to Timothy. He's, he's laying out to Timothy just some of his last and most significant thoughts, his concerns, his hopes, uh, his exhortation to his spiritual son. And we're in that passage that is particularly biographical in the sense that um, Paul is rehearsing uh, very briefly, but rehearsing uh, things about Timothy's life, how Timothy has followed Paul, who is a faithful model, a godly model that we all should follow, even as Paul has been an imitator of Christ. And so we come to this particular passage where uh, God's word is really the, the central focus, the central part of what uh, Paul wants to say to Timothy and through Timothy to the church at Ephesus and through the church at Ephesus to the church worldwide. So reading from first, second Timothy chapter three, uh, breaking into Paul's thought at verse 14, reading through verse 17. So Paul says this, but as for you, speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, this day we would ask that once again, you would be so kind to us as you are faithfully kind to us to give us that measure of your spirit that is so necessary for us to listen to your word and to learn from your word and to live by your word. And that's what we would be praying for today. Uh, may the scriptures uh, so powerful in uh, Paul's life, so powerful in Timothy's life, work its same great power in our lives so that we can be faithful witnesses to your truth. Uh, we pray this, Father, knowing that the very purpose of the truth is to be the pillar purpose of the church is to be the very pillar and buttress of the truth. Um, may this be so. May we listen with this would be the outcome and the consequences in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder this morning if you have ever known anyone like Timothy. And what I mean by that, have you ever known anyone who could say like Timothy could say, I have known the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings, from childhood, those sacred writings that are able to make us wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. My privilege has been to do so. Her name was Marge Kuyinga. She was a member of the church that I pastored in New Mexico way back in the 1980s. Um, I was hosting a Sunday school class, primarily for visitors, but it was also a kind of Bible introduction class. Uh, the textbook that I was using was, of course, the Bible, but my pedagogy was to actually use the mechanism of the game Bible trivia uh, to generate discussions and to generate questions. Of course, now you have phone apps that can do the same thing. But back in the 1980s, it was a board game. 
So I took the huge stack of cards that had the questions on it, and I would pre-select the 50 or so that I might, wouldn't get through 50, but I'd pre-select 50 or so that I might use for the instructions and questions of that day to, to move our discussion uh, about the Bible in the right direction. Well, Marge joined the class. She was first the wife of a deacon who then uh, had become an elder. So she was at this point a wife of an elder. And she joined the class just to get to know some of the newer people who were coming to the church. Well, pretty quickly, as I would take the class through round after round of these questions, it became apparent that no one was in the same league as Marge. Marge almost never encountered a question that she couldn't handle, that she couldn't answer correctly. Uh, she was so very, very humble about this, but I wanted to know, and the entire class wanted to know, uh, why she was so knowledgeable in the Word of God, why she was in a class by herself when it came to uh, playing Bible trivia. And I really had to coax the answer out of her. First, she didn't like the name of the game. She didn't like, quote, Bible trivia, because to her, nothing in the Word of God was ever to be considered trivial. But then secondly, she just simply said she had been born into a Christian family. This was way back in the 1920s. And every day of her life, as she grew up, she had eaten three meals a day with her family. And at every meal, her father would read a chapter of the Bible, reading through the whole Bible once a year. This continued all through her childhood, all through her growing up. Uh, she married when she finished high school. A, a Christian man who had the identical commitment as her own father. So every day, three meals a day, they continued to read a chapter of the Bible, reading through the Bible every year. And now for Marge, uh, in her 60s, she had been through the Bible systematically this way more than 60 times. And, and then the question was, well, is this your only exposure to the Bible? And she said, no, she, she was involved in daily Bible reading. So she had her own daily Bible reading program. And then she talked about church attendance. She said that all of her life, she had been to church uh, twice every Sunday besides Wednesday night prayer meetings. She had only missed church in all of her 60 years a few times uh, because of an illness that would, that would actually keep her in bed. It was no exaggeration to say that Marge had been through the Bible in a systematic fashion more than 100 times in her lifetime. She had sat at the feet of Jesus every day she was the godliest, one of the godliest sisters in Christ I have ever known. And of course, she was a master of Bible trivia. Well, that brief review of Marge's life would correlate then to Paul's very brief review of, of Timothy's life. And the most important and vital connection to the sacred scriptures. And that brings us then particularly to the verses I want to focus on this morning, verses 16 and 17, where we have the Bible's central teachings about itself. Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This passage 
is perhaps the most significant text in all of Scripture where Scripture speaks about himself, where Paul describes what we should know, what we should understand, and what we should believe about the Bible. And I, I want us to look at that today, and I want us to focus then upon how we can say uh, the major theme. What, the, what is the major theme that we, that we get out of these two particular verses, really several verses here together and other passages of Scripture? It's essentially this. Because God has spoken, it is for us to listen and to learn and to live. Because God has spoken in the sacred scriptures, we who are Christians are to listen to the Bible. We are to learn from the Bible, and we are to live by the Bible. Now, that theme in this passage can really be broken into four kind of constituent parts. Uh, the Bible's creation, the Bible's identity, the Bible's purpose, and the Bible's value. And so I want us to consider these four aspects of this, this great theme that God has spoken to us in the scriptures so that we can be those who truly listen to it and learn from it and live by it. So first of all, the Bible's creation. Uh, this is actually what Paul is describing when he says that all scripture is breathed out by God, or as the New International Version says, all scripture is God breathed. Paul is describing how the Bible has been created from a primary source, and that source is God himself. Now, we actually see this in terms of, of the matter and an essential matter of translation. You see, these two translations, the English Standard Version and the New International Version, are actually improvements upon the way in which we translate the original Greek language at this particular point. We know that in all the older translations, uh, from Wycliffe to Tyndale to Coverdale, and then the King James, and then all of the more recent translations that have been produced in the 20th century in English, all the way up to the New American Standard, that all of them have used the word inspiration rather than the word breathed out by God or God-breathed. But then in the 1978, the New International Version departed from that long-standing tradition. And in the same way, in 2001, the English Standard Version also broke from that tradition. And that's because the English language usage of the word inspiration had finally reached the point where that word fails to describe the Bible accurately. And here's why. In normal English today, the word inspiration refers to one of two things. Either it refers to what happens within a person or what something does to a person. For instance, when we say that speech was inspirational, we're talking about the impact of the message upon the audience. We're talking about what the speech did to the audience. Or on the other hand, we can say that speech writer was pretty inspired when he wrote that message. And now we're talking about the writer himself. We're talking about his ability. We're saying that something was going on inside of him, giving him a streak of brilliance or creativity or genius. But neither of these two meanings actually capture the meaning of the word in the Greek, the word that Paul uses. In fact, some uh, scholars believe that Paul basically invented this word. It's a compound of two Greek words. It's the compound of the word God and the compound of the word breath or spirit. 
And it literally means, as the NIV and the ESV have stated it, God breathed or God breathed out. And Paul applies it to the scriptures. Paul does not apply it to the readers of the Bible. Paul doesn't apply it to the writers of the Bible. You see, the readers of the Bible are not God-breathed, nor are the Bible writers God-breathed. It is the sacred scriptures and the sacred scriptures alone that are God-breathed or God-breathed out. You see, Paul has coined a word that applies to the Bible and to the sacred scriptures, but not to anything else. The scriptures are God-breathed or breathed out by God, and thus the Bible is God's creation. And this word pictures how God has created the Bible, and it tells us of the reality and the nature of the Bible. See, what we're speaking of here and what this word really refers to is the matter of the Bible's source. It's declaring to us that the source of the Bible is God and God alone, and that God made the Bible by breathing out or speaking out its content. Or put it, to put it another way, the Apostle Paul is stating that the authorship of the Bible is God himself. It is the book that God has created, that he has breathed out. He ex exhaled the content of the sacred scripture. The Bible comes directly from the nature and character of God. It is God-given. Now, I state all that as strongly as I think the Apostle Paul intended it. In light of what is a very common objection to this expression of the God-breathed nature of Scripture. The common objection goes something like this. But doesn't the Apostle Paul necessarily have to take into account that in the past God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways through human beings, that is, through the prophets, that God actually used human beings to receive God's revelation and to speak it and to write it down? Doesn't Paul have to take that into consideration? Doesn't Paul realize that? Well, of course Paul does. And of course Paul is fully aware of the human instruments that God uses. But that's exactly the point. It is exactly because Paul is so aware of the human writers that he declares what he does about the scriptures. Paul is stating something very important here when he ignores human authorship. Paul is making the highest claim about the Bible, that in spite of the fact that the Bible is the production of, 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 of a number of authors over 1,500 years, in spite of that, Paul is saying that we need to understand the Bible and its content and its teachings and its doctrine, that all of that has been created by God himself breathing out that content. Or in other words, Paul is making it clear the Bible is fully supernatural, and it is not a human creation. Listen carefully. The Bible is not a joint venture. It is not God-breathed and man-breathed. The, con the content of the Bible finds its origin in the mind of God and in the mind of God alone and not in the mind of man. Of course, God human used human beings. But the source of the Bible's truth and the source of the Bible's wisdom, the source of the Bible's perspective 
over all of creation, over all of human life. This comes from God and not from human thinking. And that is why the Bible has total authority over the thinking and wisdom of human beings, because the Bible is God's creation, breathed out by God. Now, secondly, then, because that is so, uh, this identifies, specifies, and then defines the Bible's identity. We find the Bible's identity intrinsic to this idea that the scriptures are God-breathed. The image created by this phrase, God-breathed, breathed out by God, is that image of speech. Speech comes out of our mouths by our breathing out, by our exhaling. It's the process of exhaling, breathing out, that brings about words. And therefore, we could actually say, if we wanted to look at the word inspiration, that truly the Bible isn't inspiration. The Bible is expiration. The Bible isn't a breathing in. The Bible is a breathing out. But it's all connected to the ideas of speech, the ideas of words, or the ideas of verbal expression, which biblically goes all the way back to creation. How did God create? God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then the psalmist in Psalm 33 reminds us that by the word of the Lord, get it? The word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. All of creation itself is God breathed and spoken into existence. And just as we know that no human being helped God in creating the cosmos, and all of creation, but rather he spoke all of it, all of creation into existence. So this word, so the sacred scriptures. Uh, we are basically told by the word God breathed that that is how they also likewise came into existence. Breathed out by God, not through any help by man in terms of its content. Now that makes it very clear how we're supposed to identify the scriptures. The Bible is God's word. And therefore, we can say with confidence that what Scripture says, God says. That is why Paul refers to the Scriptures as sacred. They're holy. They're set apart. There is no other book like it, and there's no other author like the God who has authored this book. But again, common objection. Uh, there's a common objection which basically says something like this. But, but can't you believe the Bible is both the Word of God and the word of man? I mean, wouldn't that make it so much easier to understand all of those places in the Bible where it looks like the Bible doesn't get it quite right? You know, those places in science or in history or in geography or in morality and ethics. Isn't it easier just to admit that in some places we have man's perspective and not really God's perspective? Uh, this is the moving tide of an approach within the evangelical world today. I have to tell you, uh, the, the, the voices promoting and pushing this viewpoint are very, very powerful. So powerful. And we find it in terms of the ways in which churches are beginning to crumble, uh, the way churches are beginning to fold uh, under the culture 
where the culture wants morality to be something very different than what the Bible has to say. Now, let's understand it. This approach that the Bible is a joint venture between God and man, that approach is a rejection of the idea that the Bible is fully the creation of God. It is the claim that there's God-made parts in the Bible and there are human-made parts in the Bible. Uh, the Bible isn't completely the word of God, but the God, but the Bible contains the word of God as well as containing human elements. So, if that is true, the Bible must always be interpreted and then reinterpreted as human knowledge becomes greater and greater. So, one of the ideas associated with this viewpoint goes like this. We can say with confidence that the Bible writers had no great knowledge of the universe or what the universe really looks like. Uh, and that's why um, we say today that the earth goes around the sun, not the sun around the earth, the way supposedly the Bible writers believed it or where the Bible seems to teach. Now that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that the world goes or that the earth, that the sun goes around the world. It doesn't teach that. But that's what it said to promote the idea that we always need science to correct our understanding of the Bible. It always is used to say Christians need to update their viewpoint. The, the, the human writers in the Bible thought wrongly, but with science and other avenues of knowledge, we really know now God's truth. The statement is, it's look, we're still just discovering God's truth, but we're discovering where in the Bible we have man's false understanding and where we should look in the Bible to what is really the truth of God. So let me quickly tell you where this goes today, because this process has been going on for 150 years. Let me tell you where it is today. Uh, it is said boldly uh, within evangelical circles. The Bible writers didn't know what we know today about homosexuality or sexual orientations or gender fluidity or transgenderism. But with science, we now know that all of these are variations on human sexuality. They're really just other ways in which God created human beings. The Bible writers got it wrong, but science now tells us the truth about God and his creation. So now we can get it right. So it's the Christian's job from this perspective to always be looking at the Bible to see where the Bible got it wrong so that we can allow our modern science and our modern perspectives and modern medicine and modern ethics and even modern politics to correct our thinking. Now, in teaching a number of young men who are headed into the ministry, I have referred to this view uh, often, and I have pointed out this concern. If the Bible is a joint venture between God and man, with the man part being fallible and something we need to discover when we look at the Bible, the fallible human parts, then we all must bow in our discussions of the Bible to the smartest man or the smartest woman in the room. What I mean by this is that our standard for understanding what in the Bible isn't of God and what in the Bible is of God really comes down to some form of a Bible expert, some 
the smartest Bible expert, uh, someone who has a vast knowledge of the Bible and a vast knowledge of human beings and science and so forth. We need somebody to tell us. Uh, this isn't God's word. This is man's word. Only this is God's word. In effect, understand, that puts all Christians under, let's call it this way, the Pope of science, the Pope of the greatest scientific expert, the smartest person who can interpret the world. But what is the further consequence of this? If, if that's our highest authority, somebody who's going to tell us where the Bible is wrong and someone who's going to tell us what they know God is thinking, you don't need the Bible at all. The, the need for the Bible disappears. If we have that kind of knowledge pope, if we have uh, popes of science to tell us the way human beings really are, and to correct Bible notions, and to tell us what God must truly be thinking. We no longer need the Bible. The Bible disappears in that form of Christianity as it has truly disappeared in liberal forms of Christianity for the past 100 years. The identity of the Bible as God's word disappears, and human wisdom replaces a revelation from God. But remember, the Apostle Paul said with the utmost confidence that the world did not come to know God through its wisdom. That is why the Bible is not a joint venture. Its identity is as the Word of God. What the Scriptures say, God says. Now, we move on then to the third consideration, which is the Bible's purpose, as the Apostle Paul gives it here in verse 16 and 17. Paul is speaking here of what we would say uh, in our theology and understanding of these things. He's speaking of the Bible as a means of grace. The Bible as even God's primary means of grace. The Bible by that being that which God uses to work grace in his people. And that would tell us then that the purpose of the Bible as a means of grace is to transform, redeem people. And we see this in two ways. We see the Bible as a means of grace in terms of saving grace. We see the Bible as a means of grace in terms of sanctifying grace. In the first place, with respect to saving grace, this is what the apostle is referring to in verse 15 in terms of Timothy's own life. The Bible has this performative power to transform a child of Adam, a fallen child, someone captive to the domain of the devil, into a child of God. The sacred scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, the writer James also said this in chapter 1 of James in verse 18. He says, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, the Apostle Peter, same thing, chapter 1, verse 23 of 1 Peter. Since you, speaking to Christians, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so the scriptures have this purpose of being a means of saving grace. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But it's also I mean a sanctifying grace. That is, the purpose of God's word is to transform a baby Christian 
to a mature follower of Jesus. And that's the profitability of the Bible. As it says in verse 16, to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train in righteousness. This is the purpose of the word of God in the life of a believer. And it's the very thing that Jesus prayed for in John 17, in that high priestly prayer, when he's praying for all those that the Father has given to him out of the world. And this is what Jesus prays in verse 17. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, that's the very thing that Paul is pointing to in terms of developing this idea of the Bible being a means of grace to sanctify us. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says to believers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, how are you going to get your mind renewed? Uh, the wisdom of the world will not renew your mind. There's only one form of wisdom that can renew your mind, and that is the wisdom of the word of, word of God. And so Paul is saying, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That which transforms us is the renewal of our minds through the word of God. That is why uh, early on in the incredibly profitable ministry of Dr. R.C. Sproul, he called his, his broadcast Renewing Your Minds. That was one of the themes of his entire ministry, renewing your minds by being exposed to the word of God, by listening to the word of God so that you could learn the word of God, so that you could live the word of God. The Bible, the purpose of it, to bring us unto salvation and then to transform us to be those who are sanctified by the truth of the word of God. And then Paul brings us to a fourth characteristic here, which is the value of the Bible, the Bible's great value. The Bible is God's written guide to equip us for the life of good work and good service to Christ. So in verse 17, he says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, we note that Paul again uses the term man of God to describe Timothy. He had used it before in the first epistle. He uses it again. And the man of God is really a synonym for the shepherd teacher of the church, one who is called to be a shepherd teacher. And here the value of the Bible is it's sufficient to equip the shepherd teacher so that he then can equip the church in its calling to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. At the same time, if the Bible is fully competent and sufficient to equip and train shepherd teachers of the church, then, then likewise it is fully sufficient and competent for the people of God. So the Bible is written not just to train those who are the leaders of the church, but the Bible has its value for all of us to live by, all of us to equip by, all of us so that we can serve the church and to do all the good that Christ would call us to. See, the Bible has this value in our lives because it is the word of God, the word of Christ, that's the foundation for our lives. Uh, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described this and emphasized this toward the end of that great message. In fact, you might consider it to be the climax of that message. He begins with, blessed are those. And he ends his message uh, at the end of the third chapter, or chapter seven, but five, six, and seven, he ends that message 
by pointing to the foundation of the believers, the disciples' life in his word. So Matthew 7, 24 to 27, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, if we reject the word of Christ, we cease to have a firm and true foundation. Jesus warns us that we will be building our lives on sand, and that life built that way will not stand. It will be destroyed in various ways by the storms of this life, and it will be destroyed finally and fully by the wrath of God on the day of judgment. So then Paul himself, uh, imitating Christ in all of these things, puts these eyes to, ideas together in one of his most significant uh, prayers, a passage about prayer that is grounded in Paul's understanding of the word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Listen to what Paul uh, says here as he prays about the value of the word of God. So Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. As Paul and Jesus have taught, the only source of the spiritual wisdom and understanding is the sacred scripture, because man's wisdom does not give this to us. And then Paul continues his prayer to speak out on what flows from this knowledge of God's will in the scriptures, by which there's spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul says, uh, it is so that we may, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So the value of the word of God is that it guides us, and it guards us, and it graces us with this kind of life. We listen to the word of God. We learn from the word of God so that we can live by the word of God to the glory of God. And all of this is true because God has spoken. Now, just as a final thought, uh, have no doubt about this. The Apostle Paul received his view of Scripture, first of all, from his, his heritage and his training as a Pharisee, uh, an understanding that the Bible was fully, completely the Word of God. But he, he got the full understanding of that Word upon his conversion and by the fact that he himself was specifically tutored and trained and equipped by Christ. Paul's view of the Scripture is identical to Jesus' view of the Scripture. And in holding this view of Scripture, the Apostle Paul was an imitator of Christ. 
And therefore, let's continue to follow the godly model of Christ, excuse me, the godly model of Paul, as he was a faithful imitator of Christ. Let us be all that we can to follow in the footsteps of Timothy. If your parents and you have young children, school them every day in the word of God. And if you're older, once again, reinvest in sitting at the feet of Jesus every single day. It is the word of God that we must listen to and learn from and live by. Because with absolutely certain hearts, we confess, God has spoken in his word, the sacred scriptures. And that's the foundation for our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, uh, may we all be those who desire to be uh, students of your word every day. May we always have your Holy Spirit speaking to the scriptures, bringing Christ to us. That we would sit at the feet of Jesus, that we would understand and learn all that he has commanded us. That we would be like the Apostle Paul pursuing the whole counsel of God. That we might be faithful in running the race that is set before us. That we might live to the testimony that God, you have loved sinful human beings. You've delivered up for your, your son for us all. You will freely give us all things. You've given us grace and salvation. May we love these things. May we live in accordance with these things. And then as we look around the world, may you use us as we've already prayed in our service today. May you use us to be salt and light in this generation. In Christ's name. 